Anyong, welcome to I've Made a Huge Mistake, an Arrested Development podcast. I am your host, Darren Husted, here to discuss today the extended pilot with Patrick Hamilton of the Kill by Kill podcast. Hello, Patrick. Hello, everybody. So happy to be here. And uh, with Benjamin Sunday, who you may recognize as a guest from uh, one of my more recent efforts, the As If podcast. Hello, Benjamin. Hey, happy to be here. The summary for the pilot is as follows. Moments after Michael Bluth decides he's leaving the family business because he was passed over for a promotion, his father is arrested for shady bookkeeping. And the pilot was aired in uh, November 2003 on Fox uh, in America, written by Mitch Hurwitz and directed by both Anthony and Joe Russo. It's the only episode of the series that they direct together. Mitch Hurwitz himself, before he did Arrested Development, he was a writer for a number of shows, including The Golden Girls and Golden Palace, uh, where he wrote the final ever episode. And he was a co-creator of The Ellen Show, which was Ellen DeGeneres' second sitcom. And before... Um, he'd worked with uh, Jeffrey Tambor on a uh, sitcom called Everything's Relative <laughs> in 1999 uh, before he before he kind of pitched this show to, to Fox. I mean, I'm going to get out on a limb and say it's possibly one of the best sitcoms of the past 20, 30 years. It's certainly one of my favorites. I don't know how you guys feel about it. I would definitely I would definitely say that this would be on the bleeding edge of what sitcoms would become. You would not have a 30 Rock in its current form without Arrested Development. It's one of those things that um, transmuted what a single camera sitcom could be from what it was before. Uh, and I, it's uh, monumental in, in how things ended up as a result of it. You would not have the way the U.S. version of The Office transmuted into drilling down into its side characters without Arrested Development. So it's pretty revolutionary. Uh, ben, what do you think? Yeah, I'd say that despite not being overwhelmingly popular with viewers at the time it aired, its influence has certainly been profound in regards to developments in the world of sitcoms since then. The way they did it was they would have two cameras running, and they were mostly steady cams. from what I've seen of the behind-the-scenes footage. It's... It's cameras that are, you know, attached to people by harnesses. And they would basically just let them run and they would just have the actors do the script. And then um, the cameras were directed with with a kind of... Um, essentially, what makes it stand out is they follow the action. It's not something that you really notice until, you know, you have to, uh, you know, go through for a podcast. But whenever a character starts talking, the camera is always slightly behind. Like, so they'll say a couple of words and then the camera will, will kind of cut to them or will turn to them. Or if it's, you know, in a kind of two or a three shot, it will, will kind of pull towards the character that's talking. And um, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's weird because it's kind of, although you say, you know, there are others kind of single cam sitcoms that do this. Uh, you know, the conceit of Arrested Development is that it's a documentary. But in this pilot episode, kind of the main thing that this allows the cameras to do is to, is kind of, I don't know, kind of hang around for stuff that, you know, wouldn't really be on camera, if 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 that's understandable as a statement. Well, compared to how HBO is doing a lot of their single camera sitcoms, Sex in the City, for example, which is very composed. Everything within that frame is very specific. This was following uh, the form of PBS's An American Family uh, from the early 70s. Yeah. Where you were 
following different generations of the same family and trying to capture it in the moment only every moment is scripted so that directorial choice and the way the actors play with their relationship with the camera really makes it stand out and probably scared some people from how different it was from everything else that was on the air. Uh, certainly everything that preceded it on Fox's Sunday night. This first series was the one that won the Emmy for Best Comedy. Yes. And I'm, I'm almost certain that the, the Russos were nominated for their directing for an Emmy as well on the pilot. One of the other interesting things it does is uh, it has a non-linear storytelling so you will be introduced to, you know, characters um, and situations, and then it will be explained later on in the episode what they were talking about. Um, and, and a, you know, a, a case in point is um, Tobias. When Tobias comes in, uh, Michael asks him, you know, how's the job search going? How's your uh, job search coming? It's good. Yeah? It's going to be good. It's right. going to be good. I'm hoping the universe provides a path for me. You know, he broke a man's sternum when trying to give him CPR, and that's why he lost his job. You know, going through it chronologically, the, if you can, the cold open, which introduces each of the family members kind of in succession, is, I don't know, like two or three days after the actual start. You know, like you're opening with um, Michael not getting his promotion, and, you know, and then we go back to find out the lead up to that, and we, you know, we see the family. And they're kind of, you know, the way that they spend money um, on frivolous things like the Aztec tomb um, or hoop. Uh, you know, like there are all the kind of the stuff that kind of makes up who they are is explained after you've already been introduced to them. Uh, and again, that's kind of like a radical way of, of, of kind of telling a story in a sitcom in particular is to kind of have this this weird way of of introducing kind of almost introducing punchlines before you've heard the joke yeah it's funny prior to my rewatch i actually um thought that <clears throat> the pilot opened with uh michael and george michael in the attic uh, talking about the importance of families so it was a little surprising to put the episode on and see it actually opened on the boat i think that afterwards i sort of rearranged events that occur in the pilot into the proper chronological order and um that's how i remember the episode yeah. And that's sort of the um, expectation that they have of the audience, that after going through the entire program, you'll sort of arrange the timeline in your own mind, uh, connect the uh, setups to the punchlines, and then um, end up with a complete story. It's an interesting use of cutaway as a technique, whereas in The Simpsons, those jokes are generally um, very uh, visual and short. What Arrested Development does is lean on the narration by Ron Howard to uh, sort of hold your hand through the time jumps. So while it's disorienting, it is actually guiding you through the chronology because the narrator is constantly reminding you whereabouts you are in time. Um, between those two things, it's guiding you. And in fact, that's something that kind of Mitch Hurwitz himself discusses in the in the making of uh, that is available on the season one DVD. He says that you know, like when they used to show rough cuts of the episodes without the narration, people would be like, "This is very confusing. I don't understand what is happening." And then as soon as the narration was on, everyone's like, "Oh well, this makes perfect sense now. I understand exactly what's going on." Um, and to, to speak yes. a little bit about that narration, um, Ron Howard, uh, he, he was a producer of the show because it's produced through, um, you know, Imagine, uh, which is, is, 
you know, his company with uh, with Brian Grazer. And he he narrated the episode only as essentially like a, a kind of a temp. Uh, you know, someone needed to read the narration. Uh, and Ron Howard just happened to be there. And they said, would you mind reading these lines? And he did. And then they realized that his voice um, is perfect as the narrator. And I think it's one of those elements that um, allows them to kind of uh, have a kind of a, a slightly wacky and kind of offbeat set of characters because the narrator is is the the straight man against which all this is playing. So you know he's calmly narrating the fact that uh, you know who, who Buster is and, and the fact that he's he's doing all these cartography classes and you know he's telling you kind of like in a very straight way this is what the family does. These are the crazy things they do. But because because of his kind of calm voice, it doesn't seem quite as kind of crazy. It makes me think less of um, this sort of documentary style that is being aped by The Office or Parks and Recreation, for instance, and makes me think more of, a, for instance, a nature documentary where there's yeah. this uh, calm, omniscient voice who's describing events yeah. to you and also putting you at a sort of remove yeah. from them. Almost a planet Earth sort of attack of... We're just uh, experiencing this family in nature. They just happen to be the oddest beasts that exist in Newport Beach, California. We're kind of introduced to Michael Bluth and told that he is a good man. This is Michael Bluth. He's a good man. For 10 years, he's worked for his father's company waiting to be made a partner. We find out quite late in the episode that he's a widower. Uh, and it's only a passing remark from his son, George Michael, you know, he where he says, you know, in trying to kind of get the family together, he's like, since mom died. And it's kind of, they don't really kind of linger on it. It's just kind of put there towards the end. And it kind of ties into when we meet him and George Michael, as you said, in the attic. We get kind of, I'm going to call this like a running joke where, you know, Michael will ask his son a question. And George Michael will attempt to get the answer right. But it'll always be wrong. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what he says. What comes before anything? What have we always said is the most important thing? Breakfast. Family. Family. Right. <laughs> I thought you meant the things you eat. It's kind of this weird joke that they they do, where um, you know George Michael is constantly being corrected by his father, um, and it kind of plays into you know when we're introduced to George Michael in the banana stand, he's told that. You know, the narrator tells us that, um, you know, Michael has got George Michael working there to help his self-esteem. Uh, you see him standing by himself uh, in the stand with literally no customers. Like his father before him, Michael had gotten his son a job there to bolster the boy's self-esteem. And sense gets you nuts. We're introduced straight away in the pilot to this kind of dynamic between these two characters of... Michael not really ever paying that much attention to what's going on with George Michael, but just kind of trying to control him. You know, I think that's also uh, mirrors the relationship that George Sr. has with Michael in that he's he's doing the same thing. He kind of never really pays that much attention to what Michael's actually telling him. Well, Michael has the, the most true moral sense of anyone in the family. Everyone, of the, everyone else has a very definitive desire to go in a certain direction, regardless of how it affects anybody else. Michael's the only one who really considers the group as a whole or society or the business. And he also trusts George Michael's 
sense. He, he believes that George Michaels has the same sort of moral compass that he does. And so there's a lot of like, you're going to be able to guide yourself. That being said, Michael in every single episode, watch it from now on, will change his mind at least three times. <laughs> he, will, he will decide, we have to go to Arizona. No, we don't. We have to stay with the family. No, we don't. We have to do that. And he will change his mind in every act break. He is constantly cast to the winds of the plot and the machinations around him. And he's just clinging to the mast, hoping not to be blown out to sea. Well, despite changing his mind a lot, I feel like he's not a character who ever admits how indecisive he is, though. Yeah, I agree. I think that's why there's this first kind of exchange with the whole, like, uh, you know, what do we say is the most important thing? You know, breakfast, family. Like, you know that at some point, Michael has told George Michael that both of those were the most important thing. <laughs> and he doesn't know which one yes. Michael is looking for. So, you know, when he says breakfast and Michael says family, it could have gone the other way. If he just said family, Michael would have said breakfast. You know, like, uh, it, I, it, like it doesn't matter which one he picks. And I think, um, you know, I don't want to spoil future episodes, but the whole Mr. Manager episode is kind of like that as well, where, you know, Michael keeps saying to George Michael, Mr. Manager, and when he repeats it back, he's like, no, no, we just say manager, we don't say... Ma and it's the same thing where he keeps he keeps saying stuff to George Michael, and George Michael's like, oh, this is what he wants to hear, and then he completely changes his mind, uh, sometimes within the same sentence. Um um, there is a, there's a trope which is called pilot weirdness, which is stuff in the pilot obviously is sometimes shot five, six months, a year in advance before the actual, you know, show kicks off. So, you know, there aren't standing sets, there aren't, um, you know, there aren't established locations that they can use over and over. So we get a little bit of pilot weirdness with the introduction of, uh, of Michael and George Michael when they leave the attic and they walk directly down some stairs into the main you know, kind of kitchen dining room area. And because this is an actual house, you know, this is the only time we have, we ever see them do that. And similarly with the, um, with, you know, with uh, Lucille's apartment later on, it, you know, it's an actual location. So it looks nothing like the set that they use for the rest of the show. Um, but it's an interesting moment because, um, you know, the fact that they are living in the attic, it, it's funny that they're kind of like, trying to keep this house pristine while also living in it. And I think it's also, that's also an indication of how willing, you know, uh, Michael is to do stuff for the company. You know, if, if this house were to ever be sold, um, you know, the model home, then he would have nowhere to live. He would be homeless, essentially. Well, I think that it also shows that he's willing to take his, um, his belief in uh, humility and um, restraint, uh, spendthriftness, to an extreme, to the point where it becomes a little ridiculous. Yeah. Because you assume that Michael is at least making enough money at his job to afford an apartment or something along those lines. But nonetheless, he's still uh, willing to live in this model home, either to um, demonstrate his commitment to the project or perhaps to uh, take in less of a salary so that they can be put back into the company or something along those lines. It's also part of his escape plan because if he doesn't have a lease to tie him down, it makes it easier for him to escape to Arizona, which he <laughs> believes is the savior in his life. If he can only get to Arizona, everything would be fine. I don't want to have 
a car. I don't want to have a house or apartment. Yeah. We just have to be able to move when I say move. Otherwise, the the entire family will drag me back kicking and screaming <laughs> into the Bluth company, which is exactly what happens. Yeah. Do you think then that he had anticipated the possibility of not receiving the promotion uh, even before that's revealed to him? He always had this uh, backup plan in mind. I think he is the kind of person who inherently knows that Lucy is going to pull away the football. <laughs> but there's a compelling drive within him to truly and well kick it because he knows that he can. Certainly, this will be the moment. We've all been building up to this retirement party. He has to hand the company to somebody. Nobody else wants to have it, and nobody else is you know, has the ability to actually run it other than him. Where else would it go? Well, we find out. Uh, like in between being introduced to the different family members, this kind of set piece of um, the show is the retirement party, which, of course, later turns out to be uh, a raid by um, the IRS, I think. Do they have boats? The SEC. SEC, the they SEC. have boats. That's it. There we go. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I, I think it's funny that, um, you know, uh, as we're introduced to each family member, it's um, I don't I mean, I can't recall a sitcom ever introducing each character and having them so clearly marked from the moment that they get on screen. You know, the moment we meet Job um, <laughs> introduced with kind of, you know, his Chiron, which tells you that he's a, you know, a magician and, and various other things. Um, you know, you know exactly who he is because he, he just kind of has an attitude uh, that kind of entitlement, um, you know, particularly the whole conversation over the Aztec tomb. Now, there's a, there's a one puzzling thing in this episode for me, which is, um, I, I mean, I, maybe obviously this comes from having seen the whole show, uh, but Lucille is generally not a fan of Job. And she says in this episode... Don't care for Joe. Oh, and yet she was mm -hmm. willing to spend that eighteen thousand on the Aztec tomb because Job thinks it's a career maker. Uh, and obviously, we start the running joke of people calling people calling what Job does a trick and him correcting it to an illusion, which is something he even does as he pushes his father into the Aztec tomb. And, you know, one of my favorite lines is where George Sr. is like, I don't have time for your tricks. And Job corrects him and says, you don't have time for my illusions. And it's funny because, you know, in a normal sitcom, someone would correct the whole you don't have time part rather than <laughs> correcting the word trick to illusion. It's so important to yeah. him that he, the, mis the mystery of this magic career is maintained. And... One thing should be noted. This was in the golden age of Fox in particular, airing a series of specials about the secrets of magic. So the entire league of magicians who will blacklist you if you give away a magician's trick is a direct meta-reference to Fox. Yeah. And if you look very carefully in the bottom left-hand corner of that photo of the Masters of Illusion or whatever they call themselves... You see a very young Bill Hader. <laughs> Just a baby Bill Hader in the world's worst haircut. But it is so clearly him. Uh, 
because he he was working in improv and comedy and editing in particular at this time. Ah, so they see, I hadn't even noticed him because uh, you know that picture, which appears twice, with one important change, which is you know after Job has been blackballed, and it's funny because you know he explains that he sets up the alliance. And then they throw him out. <laughs> and that feels that yes. feels like the story of Job's life is setting something up so that he can take part and then people excluding him from it. Uh, and I, th- I think that's that's quite funny. Now, I'm going to say something that we also get in this episode, which is possibly one of my favorite things, is Arrested Development will have this thing where characters will repeat certain jokes or certain lines in different circumstances. Um, so, you know, the one of the kind of funniest bits of that in this episode is when um michael is is talking with george michael about uh you know he, the rest of the family and he says that they've never felt the sweet sting of sweat in their eye well i'd rather live like this than be like my aunt and uncles whose eyes have never stung from the sweet sweat of a hard day's work whoa 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 where are you getting all that this is before he doesn't he knows he's not going to be the the new ceo and he's promising that Everyone's going to finally feel the sweet sting of sweat in their eyes. And as he says this, Buster uh, is, is playing on the drum. You guys have had your hands in the company coffer for years. But starting tomorrow, there is going to be a new boss in town. And you're all going to have to start fending for yourselves. You're all going to finally feel that sweet sting of sweat in your eyes. As Buster, you can't do that on the balcony, buddy. Jason Bateman does this so effortlessly where he goes from this kind of anger of, of delivering this line to quickly turning and saying, Buster, you can't do that on the balcony, buddy. He doesn't stop at all in the, in the, in the line. He literally just goes from being super angry at everyone else. And then you have the return line from Buster, which is, uh, I can't because mom, says, mom it's too, says it's too windy. Yeah. Which again, straight away, you know, like Buster is, uh, and this will kind of, I feel like it gets a bit cartoony at points where kind of the helplessness of Buster and, and how, you know, um, reliant he is on on Lucille, um, but yeah, just like the idea that this kind of almost thirty year old man won't go and play his drum out on the balcony because his mother says it's too windy. It's such a great kind of character setup. Going back to the um, idea of uh, George Michael repeating a, a line from Michael, I that, I enjoy that not just as a joke but also as an indication of the degree to which uh, Michael has sort of been trying to impose his values on his son. And the way that his son has of repeating what's told to him by his father without necessarily understanding yeah. it. Uh, later on, there's a line where uh, George Michael says... I think there aren't enough young people out there today who have a real work ethic. What do you mean? I don't know. And when maybe he questions him on that, says, uh, what do you mean by that? He says, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he's literally just parroting what his father says and... You know, in some sense, that's helpful for him to gain a, a moral sense. But on the other hand, he, he doesn't really know what he's saying at all. And he, he's very much a boy who's sort of, um, over the course of the series, going to have to find his uh, own sort of identity separate from his father. I think Michael Sarah he's so perfectly cast in this role because he has just the right amount of kind of like naivety. Also, he's, you know, he he is the moral compass that when we when we're introduced to maybe we find out, you know, through flashbacks and through the narrator, that essentially she is constantly pushing against her parents and doing the opposite of whatever her parents want her to do. Um, you know, like we see um, Lindsay saying, this is a great tattoo for you. And she's like, I want to enter beauty pageants. Like 
it, it doesn't matter what her parents want her to do. She always kicks against it. And that's something that kind of will continue throughout the rest of the show where, you know, whatever um, Lindsay or Tobias suggest maybe immediately does the opposite. And I think that contrasts perfectly with George Michael, who, like you say, essentially is becoming a clone of his father and isn't quite sure why she's the ultimate rebel without a cause yeah and <laughs> and her only cause is to break away from whatever rigid ideology that Lindsay has decided to fasten onto this week yeah uh, going back to michael sarah very quickly his journey to this is rather interesting in the season just before this he was in a fox sitcom that was developed and they actually bought 13 episodes of it and it was so bad they didn't even air it it was called the grubs and it was god awful <laughs> and the only thing in it that had any value of any kind was michael sarah it's just one of those things where you go oh that person doesn't suck and the rest of this <laughs> does and so I think that was the easiest decision Fox had to make in terms of this was who are you going to get that that had such an innate puppy dog quality without being annoying. And Michael Sarah has that in spades. And he also knows how to land this kind of joke. Everyone in this group pretty much knows how to land this kind of joke. But he picks up on Jason Bateman's, uh, you know, tenor and the way he can twist dialogue back and forth perfectly. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. In a bit of, uh, I guess, real-world stuff, it's worth noting that um, Michael Sarah obviously is Canadian, and he apparently mm -hmm. was having visa issues just before the pilot started shooting. So there was a chance that he wasn't going to be in this pilot. Um, and he actually had to leave the country um, and go to Mexico and then come back in and get a work visa. Um but but the backup <laughs> actor who who basically would have taken over is an actor by the name of uh, Michael... I don't know how to pronounce his surname. I'm going to say Anger, Angerano. Um, and he played the younger version of uh, William Miller in Almost Famous. Um, and and he's, been, he's been in a lot of films recently. He was in, um, he was in Red State as one of the, uh, the three teenagers. Uh, but he he kind of has a similar kind of quality to him uh, that that kind of Michael Sarah has, but it's kind of weird to think uh, that you know. But for a, a quick trip to Mexico, uh, he might not have even been in the pilot. Um, but you know, as we're talking about the the kids, uh, you know, obviously the other big asset um, for the show is Alia Shawcat as maybe who is introduced as May maybe Funke. Maybe it's just a nickname, mm. um, but it's also the first thing that she says to him <laughs> when when asked about his status as a cousin. And obviously, you know, that becomes a very long running kind of gag. You're my cousin, aren't you? Maybe. Uh, particularly in this first season, but, you know, in later seasons, they really lean heavily into that storyline that, you know, they share a kiss <laughs> on screen and... Later on in the episode, you know, George Michael suggests they kiss again. And then the actual, the kind of the final punchline before we cut to the, you know, what will, what will become the, the signature of Arrested Development, which is the on the next kind of, um, you know, 
kind of, uh, I don't know how to call it, like an epilogue, uh, George Michael finds out from his father that he's going to be bunking with his cousin. And it basically, the camera does the kind of like, you know, stops on his face and they have like a little musical sting that plays. And, you know, he, he kind of seems, uh, you know, a little shocked. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, this is the start of what will be a long running storyline about uh, these two cousins possibly loving each other. Going back to the idea of pilot weirdness, I think there are a couple interesting points with regards to the presentation of Maybe mm-hmm. in this pilot. Um, first of all, there's her um, being this sort of uh, expressing her rebellious side by rebelling against a, a liberal ideology with uh, Lindsay talking about it her possibly getting a tattoo, and then, on the other hand, she says, I'm going to be a beauty pageant queen. And then, later on, at the end of the episode, she's singing Britney Spears in the shower. (laughs) I think those two characteristics um, don't necessarily carry through over to the rest of the series. It's hard to imagine a latter season uh, maybe singing Britney Spears, or and actually, she she does end up in a beauty pageant, but it's a, to rebel against the very idea of beauty pageants, not to participate yeah. earnestly. There's also a bit of pilot weirdness in terms of how often um, George, Michael, and Michael see Lindsay and the rest of the Funkes. You know, we get the explanation that they've been in Boston, um, you know, that they don't really visit that often. And yet later on, in the series, we will see family events or flashbacks to family events where they're all there and it's as if they've always been there. So there is kind of a, I, th- I think it's necessary in the pilot to kind of set up a reason for um, Lindsay and Tobias and maybe to move into the model home. Uh, but it is, a, it is a little weird that there seems to be this suggestion that basically they're never there. Yeah, the, the pilot... The pilot's arc overall is just this idea of a family that's become estranged from each other. And then after this uh, unfortunate circumstance, they're forced to finally come together because uh, essentially they're the only thing that each other has. And that's dependent on the idea that George Michael hasn't seen maybe or Lindsay or Tobias in you know, a very long time, sporadically over the course of several years, I yeah. suppose. So, I mean, let's, I mean, we've kind of, I've mentioned them a few times, but we haven't really got into it. But let's talk about uh, the parents. Um, you know, Jeffrey Tambor, I knew from Larry Sanders, um, which mm-hmm. I think finished in 99, I want to say. And so, you know, I think when I saw the second episode, which was the first episode that I saw, and I saw Jeffrey Tambor on the opening credits uh, because no episodes of Arrested Development or, you know, there's maybe a couple here and there. They generally don't do previously on. Um, They don't do any recaps of stuff. You know, they go straight into the opening credits, which we don't get here, but we do get in the second episode. And that kind of sums up the events of um, the pilot, which like you say, is about a strange an estranged family being brought together. And, you know, the narration for the, the credits, which we get in the second episode, pitches it as Michael being the one to hold them all together, uh, which, as the show goes on, seems slightly more absurd. Uh, But, yeah, so, you know, George Sr. kind of will be the main driver of the story for the rest of the kind of first season, him being in prison, you know, him being prosecuted, that whole thing. His his not choosing Michael uh, is an important thing because it seems like he knows that there's something wrong with the company and he doesn't want Michael to be anywhere near it so he kind of is thoughtful in that way um but the way he delivers the um you know he's 
<laughs> the way he talks about who the new CEO is going to be. And although I won't be uh, saddling up and uh, going, uh, going in every day, there's someone else who's going to. I give you the new CEO for the Bluth Company. Certainly the smartest Bluth. My favorite Bluth. And the uh, sexiest creature I have ever laid eyes on. My lovely wife, Lucille. And then when he goes, the sexiest creature I've ever laid my eyes on. And then <laughs> Jason Bateman's face kind of drops a little bit. And he's a little bit confused. And then, you know, then Lucille is named as the, <laughs> uh, as the CEO. You know, everyone is happy except for Michael. And they're mostly happy because they think um, that, that uh, Lucille is going to basically just give them tons of money as, you know, continue as things have been going. Um, Lindsay even says... I'm not going to lie to you, Michael. This is great news for who? <laughs> <laughs> which is... Which is, which is yeah, short for hands off our penises. Yeah, which is such a great... It's such a... It, I, I think I like that gag, but I think the other... the other When they show, um, you know, uh, Lindsay as, as kind of attending all these fundraisers, and she's at the, uh, the one about um, For Hunger... And she turns away food because she's so full, and I think that's like it. That like it, that's such a a well like organ like a, a well constructed joke of having you know a fundraiser for hunger and the person doing the fundraising is you know just can't eat any more food. I think that's and it's done so quickly. Um, but uh, yeah, so like Jeffrey Tambor, I think he's like he's great. He's great in practically everything, uh, but. He is just fantastic as George Senior because he kind of, um, you know, he has a, a way of handling um, Michael that is kind of similar to the way that Michael handles George Michael of kind of reassuring him and and kind of, um, you know, making him feel like something is, you know, important is 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 being done between the two of them. But then he, you know, kind of keeps him at a distance well in the extended pilot at least we actually see george senior echoing the same line that's uh, been spoken by by michael and george michael about family being first and you get the sense that just as um george michael's learned this from michael michael himself has learned that from george senior yeah and that gives us a hint of sort of um, a past intimacy to that relationship that may not be there right now as far as comedic opportunities, he doesn't get a ton to do in this particular episode. He's kind of a plot delivery system in a way. Yeah. He's there to be arrested. He's there to make decisions that affect everyone else. That being said, in upcoming episodes, they find a way to make him being in jail one of the funniest things that has ever been on television. <laughs> and I can tell you that within the halls of Fox... Yelling no touching quickly became the, the favorite of everyone. I mean, you would walk down the hallway in, in the promo department and the edit base would be open and you would just hear no touching, no touching, no touching <laughs> over and over and over again from all of these edit bays. He fi finds a way to make the thrill of I just enjoy being in prison. I enjoy the way this is constructed and how it works. It's it's a really funny, humorous tick that he's able to drill down into. And then on the other end of that, because you have Jessica Walter, who is without a doubt that she is 
a sniper when it comes to being funny in this show. She does the most with singular lines and setups. She is amazing. And she's always aggrieved. It doesn't matter what it is. And her introduction of... Look what the homosexuals have done to me. And his response... You can't just comb that out and reset it? That is her going forward. She's always aggrieved. She's always unsatisfied. She is always disappointed at all costs. And yet, everything she does continues the path of making herself unhappy. Yeah. She refuses to make herself happy. And in later seasons, that becomes a very big arc for her when she actually attempts to become happy and how uncomfortable she is at that very concept. I think like her first two lines where she's, you know, the whole look what the homosexuals have done to me, which I, again is such a fantastic like, opening line, as particularly with Michael's kind of flippancy of like, can't you just comb that out and reset it? Like the fact that he, I guess he, he kind of knows what she's talking about, but he's deliberately saying it's about the hair. Uh, but then her second line, which is kind of something that um, this show kind of excels at, which is setting up characters that don't seem to be aware of, like, the joke that they are playing on themselves. So, you know, mm-hmm. the whole... Everything they do is so dramatic and flamboyant. It just makes me want to set myself on fire. And particularly the way she delivers those lines. It's just so good that you... It's it, Every line, it always... It, everything she says always makes me laugh because it's just so well done and so kind of ridiculous and and uh you know she's just so good um we get an introduction of tobias but without it being an introduction of tobias which i feel is something that will continue for the rest of the show in terms of the treatment of tobias you know he's he's on that boat he's with uh the homosexuals who are you know protesting um (laughs) Uh, so that they can get married on the ocean, uh, I think is what they're, they're chanting. Yeah, we're here. <laughs> we're here. We're queer. We want to get on married the on the ocean. And the only thing holding them back <laughs> is the yacht club, which I find <laughs> hilarious. I, I, the The entire conversation in this show with Newport Beach is beyond crazy. Uh, Orange County's a very conservative uh, corner of California. And this dynamic proved to be such an amazing creative force that this was the second show that Fox premiered that year <laughs> yeah. that had to do with Newport Beach. In fact, the OC is basically Arrested Development done seriously because it's about a family who's rocked to its core by financial uh uh, by financial misappropriation within a real estate developer's company. Uh, yeah. And then there's a bunch of teenage shit that happens, but it's the same show. They were filming in the same places. Balboa Island is featured in both pilots. <laughs> they basically the Bluth, you know, sudden Valley development is the development that happens in the Cohen family uh, in, in uh, Newport beach. It's, crazy how they're sort of having a dialogue with that but having nothing to do with one another because the oc came out of warner brothers uh, and that was the production company and this came out of imagine and 20th century fox they just happen to be on the same network and yet they are talking about the same things constantly i might also whenever you say the oc i have to say uh don't call it that um because 
that just becomes a reflex. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, 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 yeah, it's it's funny that the show is kind of commenting um, so specifically on this particular place that I've never been to, and yet I feel like I sort of know what it is. <laughs> Lucille and George Senior, like their relationship, uh, will kind of define and particularly their, their their different relationship with um the children because um you know as lucille says she doesn't care for job and that kind of as the show goes on becomes more and more apparent uh and you know byron who is the youngest is obviously far too close uh to his mother <laughs> and again that is that is something which you know as the uh, as the family's largesse becomes a lot smaller uh, you know that relationship gets thrown into sharp relief. I think we've kind of covered everything that happens in the episode. Obviously, you know the SEC turn up on some boats, uh, which has um, the like the p- almost perfect timing of the two rim shots. All right, let's see some smiles, people. It's a it's a party, not a shareholders meeting. Those police boats? No, I'm serious. I, I think they are police boats. The inappropriate joke is something that uh, Arrested Development does really well, and that's kind of like the mildest of it, but, you know, uh, there will be a lot more. Um, I also like this kind of cowboy... I don't. I think this joke probably went more somewhere after the pilot, but Mitch Hurwitz probably dropped it, but this whole cowboy thing, um, which I think is just set up so that it's kind of a head fake for Michael about not getting the promotion where he does. he says his father's been calling him partner. And George Michael goes. Oh, yeah. George Michael goes. Yeah, that does sound like partner. Um, you know, which again, it kind of highlights. Oh, I also think the cowboy thing might be referencing uh, the bushes. As yeah. Well. Their yeah. Whole cowboy affectation. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because um, Michael later on he says to his father, he goes, you know, I think I dropped the cowboy stuff while you're in here. <laughs> and George mm-hmm. Senior goes, Yeah, oh yeah, I'm doing that. Like. You know, he. I guess that's kind of how they write it out. Essentially, is to say, oh yeah, you know, he's he's going to drop it. But yeah, and I, I like the bush thing is will be expanded on later on as the show goes along. But there is kind of at first, it's just a kind of almost like a playful thing with the naming of Job, which I feel in two thousand three, not many people would have heard of Jeb Bush. Um, and I'm going to hazard a guess that even here in two thousand sixteen, not many people have heard of Jeb Bush. Um, later on, it becomes kind of more explicit with the whole uh, Iraq thing. Um, all, all of these things have various layers that can be dug into. The fact that John Beard, this is his first appearance as, as the newscaster, and he will go on and season after season to be the network representative. Yeah. Uh, and he was a very big broadcaster here in Los Angeles at that time and for many years after. Um, and uh, things like the banana stand, um, which is introduced here, later becomes a much more significant uh, plot development for the group. But it's also a very real thing in uh, on Balboa Island and on the peninsula there. Uh, frozen bananas are an actual industry <laughs> and... <laughs> that there are competing shops that have the definitive Balboa bar or frozen banana. And it's, it's kind of weird for Southern California. It doesn't fit in with a lot of the rest of the things that we have here, but it's very specific to that spot. Now, just wrapping up here, I was going to say, you know, duh, we've obviously 
gone through quite a lot of the jokes here. Um, but uh, are there any jokes or setups or any kind of stuff like that which we haven't discussed, which are either of your guys' favorites? Uh, ben? Joe takes $20 from uh, <laughs> George Michael and then turns it into a Monopoly set, which isn't even a complete set. It's missing several pieces. And then he keeps the $20 as well. Uh, yeah. Another funny aspect of it that we see later on is uh, George Michael in the attic and he's standing next to three separate Monopoly sets. Yeah, and they finish up by playing Monopoly and obviously George Michael makes the uh, the joke about how um, how George Senior should have been stocking up on get out of free jail guards. And Job kind of gives him <laughs> yeah. this kind of half awkward <laughs> high five type thing and it's it's really funny. Uh, yeah, now that is one of my that's one of my favorite gags and it also sets up the gag of um job doing magic tricks and then people not asking him to explain them but saying you know what are you doing and he takes that as oh i'm not going to tell you how i did it when george michael um you know says to him where's the 20 dollars job kind of takes that as explain the trick but he's not asking to explain the trick he just wants the 20 dollars back uh, and that scene finishes with let's f- i don't need the secret i just need what to you need to know that it's magic. Wow. So much like stealing. Um, after being <laughs> after being told it's magic. Two very quickly that I would be remiss if I didn't uh, bring them up. One is Job's segue. Yeah. Uh, and that being the sort of signal for rich person. <laughs> um, and the, the that he just breezes into it like he can't, he can't even be bothered to walk. <laughs> it, everything is wrapped up in the quote-unquote illusion of magic. <laughs> uh, it's just It just signals immediately a-hole. And then, uh, on the other hand, is the weird Arrested Development take on physical comedy. And it starts very simply with uh, the wink. Lucille's <laughs> wink, which is to keep one eye open and one eye closed in a very awkward way. And then Michael going, I wish I could... I wish I could explain it. How? Please stop doing that. <laughs> it's disconcerting. This will then go on where every sort of physical gag that that happens, everyone has their own version of it. So everyone will have their own version of a bad wink. Everyone will have their own version of the uh, Michael is a chicken dance. <laughs> everyone has their own version of a physical gag. And they just keep adding to it. They keep drilling down into the characters in order to find new ways to do the same thing. And it it pays off in a way that not a lot of shows it, it can. And I, it's, it's magic. <laughs> yeah, don't try and explain it. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, 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 there's, there's a few little things that they do. Like um, they're very like they're so good at kind of. I mean. Uh, I guess it's foreshadowing, but I'm sure Mitch Hurwitz, I think on the pilot says, you know, like there's a lot of stuff that they, they're credited as setting up, but it was just kind of like one-off lines that, you know, 10 episodes down the line, they decided to pay off. Um, But, you know, like uh, Lucille says that, you know, to the press, she says that, um, you know, he's not a mastermind, you know, and that turns out to be true. He, you know, George Senior was not the mastermind of, of everything that was going on. You know, we see Sitwell very briefly for, you know, two short scenes where Michael is offered a job and he asks them, uh, attic or main house, which of course is such a, a weird question to ask at a job interview. And then Job 
actually has some successful magic tricks. You know, his his fireball works and his his dove flies out, but then it lands on the guy's head, and you know, um, and even weirder. Um, <laughs> after the arrest, Job says the line, "We need ice," and like a season and a half later we meet a bounty hunter called Ice. And it's such a, like, I don't think it's something that they deliberately set up, but it's just something that kind of, like, when, you, when you're watching through, you know, the second or third or 20th time, you're like, it's such a weird line that essentially later on they'll say, we need Ice, and they're talking about the bounty hunter. Um, which, of course, you know, he only a bounty hunts to support his um, his catering business. So Another one I'd point out is um, maybe obsession with teaching our family a lesson which uh, <laughs> becomes a recurring thing with each of the members of the booth family trying to teach everyone else lessons not only do you have ron howard but later on you'll uh well the setup for it is uh when george senior is explaining to michael why he wasn't made president of the company is because yeah he, in his words, they can't arrest a, a husband and a wife for the same crime. <laughs> and yeah. Michael goes, that's not true. And George Sr. goes, I have the worst lawyers. Later, we'll meet the worst lawyers. Yeah. And they'll, uh, that is another brilliant point. They just find a way to mine the things that are brought up and revisit them in a way that may not necessarily pay them off completely but expands them they just don't let things lie yeah i think that they, i think that's something they... that's going to come up in episode after episode is whenever you you feel i mean this you know they'll they will set something up without you realizing it's a setup like like you say the line about the lawyers and then when you meet the lawyers you realize that actually yeah you know barry zuckercorn is the worst lawyer uh but you know it isn't something you're necessarily waiting for it's just something that's set up and kind of put to one side and then you know when they can they come back to it thanks to both of you for joining me for uh this first episode um you know i feel that this episode is going to be slightly longer than the normal running time of most episodes because we did an extended pilot so uh you know we get a little and we're meeting everybody so there's a lot more to to discuss um so uh but thanks for joining me to talk about this first episode it's a pleasure Enjoyed it. Now, um, Patrick, uh, do you have anything you wish to plug? Uh, well, I would just encourage uh, those uh, in listening in the internet to come and check me out on the Kill by Kill podcast, uh, where myself and my co-host are going through the Friday the 13th series to look at the most uh, underwhelming component <laughs> of horror, and that is the characters. Uh, so we will drill down into every single character as they die, their highs, their lows, because the camp counselor's untimely end is just the beginning of the discussion about them. <laughs> and uh, Benjamin, do you have anything you wish to plug? Uh, yeah, I have some film writing on 366weirdmovies.com, as well as the Brattle Theater Film Notes blog. And I've also previously appeared on the As If podcast. <laughs> Uh, yes, one of my other podcasts that I have produced. Um, I am also on the As If podcast, and also I am a guest on A Talking Cast, and The Cast Next Door, and uh, Stage of Fools. So, uh, you know, uh, you can follow this podcast, if you wish, on Twitter at uh, A Huge Mistake Pod, uh, or follow us on Facebook at I've Made a Huge Mistake Podcast. Um, but otherwise, everyone for listening, and on the next, I've made a huge mistake, we'll be talking about Top Banana, 
Uh, don't forget, there's always money in the banana stand. <laughs>